0: We all know that abortion is a multi-billion dollar business for corporations like Planned Parenthood and others who are literally invested in the ending of human life. It's a perverse thing. Ironically, these places often call what they're doing human rights. They couch themselves and their activities in the language of human rights because it's a way to paper over the realities of abortion as a business, as an industry, and as a practice. It's a way to paper over the costs of this in particular the human costs on a personal level not just for the mothers and fathers and children who are the ultimate victims of abortion but also for whole communities that are erased by people never having been born I think of Steve Jobs famous quote where he reflected on his own life as an adoptee and said that he was grateful that he didn't end up as an abortion and isn't so much of the world grateful for that too We speak today with Dr. Michael New, friend of Life, Liberty, and Law, returning to the show from the Charlotte Lozier Institute, from the Catholic University. Dr. Michael New, of course, is the most famous statistician and data analyst and sort of expert extraordinaire of the pro-life movement, doing so much important work, particularly at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, in revealing uh, the nature of what's happening with abortion on the data side. uh, Dr. New is sort of single-handedly confronting I think what the Guttmacher Institute pays dozens uh, of Dr. New's on their side of the aisle to do. And so in that sense, uh, he is truly uh, a uh, a one-man extraordinaire. We're thrilled to speak with him today on some of the latest polling concerning abortion, whether the right questions are being asked and what it means when the wrong questions are asked, and some of Dr. New's research Uh, Particularly this time of year as we head into 40 Days for Life and the practical work of sidewalk counseling and alternatives assistance to people considering abortion. I am Tom Shakley and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. I am Tom Shakley, and I'm thrilled to be joined today, of course, by Anna-Claire Noblett. Anna-Claire, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. I should say welcome back to you, Tom. We are glad to have you on the show today.
0: It's a pleasure to be back with you. And of course, we've got Dr. Michael New returning to the show. Dr. New, it's been too long. It's such a pleasure to speak with you again.
1: Uh, Thanks for having
2: me. Much appreciated
0: absolutely so tell us dr new you're in the start we'll get to some of the real real topics here in a second but you're at the start of another semester teaching at the catholic university isn't that right
2: uh that's correct we're about midway through the fall semester here at cua
0: it's incredible and catholic university is one of the big you know washington dc itself is is host to something like a dozen universities it's incredible how many are packed into a really small geographic area a lot of great universities catholic university is is one of the great ones and uh, i think your classes there are a must for anybody considering uh, uh, basically a, an undergraduate doctorate, if such a thing existed, uh, in pro-life advocacy and uh, and statistics.
2: <laughs> no, I teach a good roster of classes. I teach microeconomics, macroeconomics. I teach a class on the federal budget. I teach game theory. I really try to teach people the basics of social science. I hope they can apply that. It would be wonderful if they applied it to use a culture of life, but uh, wherever life takes them, uh, I think it's a good foundation.
1: I would definitely agree. I, I would love to hear a little bit about um, you know, the ways that you just, at a base level, think that some of those things apply to the pro-life movement. How do those things overlap for you?
2: Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there was really no grand plan for me to go to grad school and use my social science background to advance a culture of life. Uh, my dissertation in grad school dealt with state-level budget rules and fiscal limits, And I came of age in this town doing work for some various uh, libertarian think tanks. And uh, one thing I noticed during my dissertation is that in the 1970s, we had a tax revolt. And a lot of the state-level budget rules and fiscal limits intended to keep taxes low and keep spending down over the long term just didn't work that well. And I noticed that, you know, there's all these pro-lifers working hard at the state level trying to pass these state-level pro-life laws. And I wondered, do they do any good? Do they actually lower abortion rates? And there was data out there on state abortion rates I didn't see anybody doing all that much with. So I did a study on this. And one thing led to another. And the Heritage Foundation published my first study on this in January of 2004. And it did find that a lot of the incremental pro-life laws, like limits on public funding of abortion through Medicaid, parental involvement laws, informed consent laws, whether they're well-designed, properly designed, these laws all do lower abortion rates. And I thought the pro-life movement would come along, pat me on my head, tell me thank me for the study, Tell me what a great young guy I was, and that would be (laughs) it. It did not work that way. People were very excited about this study. Uh, I was getting invitations to speak. And one thing I didn't really realize was that the pro-life movement did not really have its own in-house social scientists. To really look at the data on different things, whether it was polls, whether it was abortion trends. And I had this great background. I had a PhD in political science. I had a master's degree in statistics, uh, both from Stanford. I thought, you know what? If no one else is doing this, I should do it. It became a great kind of a college industry for me. I'm grateful that uh, National Review Online uh, allows me to blog at their website. I'm grateful that I've been hired by great places like Ave Maria and Catholic University of America. I was very flattered 10 years ago, roughly. The Charlotte Lozier Institute named me their first associate scholar. So uh, it's just been a blessing to contribute to a culture of life uh, in this manner.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's so well said. I think we've all been blessed to have you. And as I alluded to in the introduction, I think, you know, when you look at a group like the Guttmacher Institute, which we'll talk more about in a few moments, you know, Guttmacher was started as an official part of of Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry's efforts to whitewash what they're doing and the impact they're having in society. It's now, you know, in some sense, allegedly independent. It's been that way for a while. Um, But pretty much everything you see Guttmacher put out in one way or another um, is promoting the idea or the ideas that undergird uh, abortion as an industry and as a social practice. right? It's like if you are a justice who voted for Roe, or if you're a justice who, who voted to re-envision uh, abortion culture through the Casey decision in 92, or if you're a justice who'd like to perpetuate that in the case of Dobbs in 2022, you're going to love what Guttmacher Institute does. You're going to love the sort of things they put out because they confirm your narratives, and I think a lot of people look to studies, right, you know, what are the experts saying, and they assume that these people truly are experts, you know, an expert meaning sort of the classical definition of that, meaning somebody who is looking at at data, looking at a lot of different inputs and trying to figure out what is the truth of of this issue, what is the truth of the thing. Um, rather than someone who's going in with sort of a a preordained outcome that they're seeking to basically do public relations work for, right? So I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, Dr. New, um, whether you want to talk to the Guttmacher side or not. But if you could speak to, you know, when people are seeing claims put out in the media, put out by public polling firms, put out by think tanks, groups like Guttmacher, why is it that they often can't trust them?
2: Well, essentially, you know, Guttmacher up until around 2006 or 2007 was the official research arm of Planned Parenthood. And, you know, their studies and analyses all purportedly claim that, you know, abortion is safe and poses minimal public health risks and that, you know, contraception programs are effective and are a good strategy for lowering abortion rates. And I think a lot of that is just very misleading. Um... There are some people at Guttmacher who do engage in, I think, legitimate, you know, rigorous research. The main problem is the way they spin those findings. Uh, as someone who is an academic, sometimes you have to be careful. You have to draw a distinction between what the study is actually saying and how it's being promoted. And I see my role as kind of de-spinning or unspinning their studies. Uh, I think as we'll talk about today with our new study on kind of pregnancies and unintended pregnancies, I think the study actually does provide very solid evidence that, pro-life efforts have been effective in terms of increasing the percentage of unten pregnancies carried to term. Uh, I think the data is very clear. They don't mention that. Uh, they're very clever and I think very deceptive about how they present some of their findings. So again, I think that there are some good research being done there. Uh, it's just their spin is kind of, in my opinion, atrocious.
0: Yeah, Anna-Claire, Dr. New, I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through this latest Marist poll on abortion and kind of why it asks the wrong question, what the concerns are with this particular study.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed this, this article, Dr. New. I mean, it's it's something that we really want to do on this podcast to kind of address The really loud messages that are coming from news outlets, social media, and even from the floor of Congress, and from you know seemingly very trustworthy research institutes, Um, we want to be able to really sort through the messages that we're getting from the media as consumers, and then specifically as not only pro-life individuals, but just thoughtful, educated individuals, um, be able to really do what you did in this article and and pull out some questions of, you know, this isn't lining up. This doesn't sound, this doesn't even sound accurate. And so why are you putting this out for, you know, for lawmakers to use in their decisions and for, for Americans to go off of? Um, but you pointed out that in this recent Marist poll, they were trying to show levels of support for, for legislation like the Texas heartbeat bill, SB8. Um, and so it was, in conjunction with NPR and PBS NewsHour and surveyed 1,200 adults um, and found that only 32% of Americans would support this legislation protecting preborn children after, after the heartbeat is detected, after six to eight weeks of pregnancy. Um, so, so what are your concerns about this particular study? Summarize it for us, and, and how did you come to, you know, what were the red flags that you initially saw?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, this study came out and it claimed that only about 32 percent of Americans would support a piece of legislation similar to the Texas heartbeat bill. And, you know, the media spin on this is the Texas heartbeat bill is really unpopular and it's going to hurt pro-lifers in future elections. And this is something that people simply just reject. Well, you have to look a little more carefully at the findings. And one thing I always do is I look at the crosstabs. I look at the uh, kind of demographic breakdown of the findings. And I noticed two red flags right away. First, almost every poll on abortion shows big differences in opinion between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, The most recent Gallup poll on abortion found that 74% of Republicans identify as pro-life and only 26% of Democrats identify as pro-life. That's a 48 percentage point gap. This poll with the Texas heartbeat bill only had a 3 percentage point gap between Democrats and Republicans. So we get most polls showing a 30 40% gap, and this poll only has a 3% gap. That's kind of sketchy, for lack of a better word. Right. Secondly, uh, another key demographic is white evangelicals. Almost every survey I've ever seen on any kind of piece of pro-life legislation shows that white evangelicals are typically a lot more likely than others to support different types of pro-life bills. With this poll done by Marist, they're actually less likely than the average voter or the average respondent to support this Texas heartbeat bill. So you have low levels of support among white evangelicals. That's another white flag. So I go to the question wording, and I think the question was worded in a very confusing or misleading way. They asked respondents, would you support a piece of legislation that would legalize abortion for the first six to eight weeks of pregnancy, but then protect pre-born children afterwards? That's a real misrepresentation of the Texas law. Many people who are pro-life probably said they would oppose a bill like that because they want all abortion children protected. They don't want abortion legal at any stage of pregnancy. And again, that's a real misrepresentation of what the Texas bill did. Abortion is already legal in Texas. What this Texas bill does, it does protect pre-born children after fetal heartbeat can be detected. It doesn't explicitly legalize abortion in any other case. So because of the way this question was worded, I think a lot of people who are pro-life said they oppose this bill uh, because, you know, the way this bill was presented, it claimed to legalize abortion in certain cases, And that's not what a lot of pro-lifers want. So again, I think the question was worded in a very bad, very misleading way. It was just even disappointing that Maris released this poll. I mean, Maris is a professional polling firm. Uh, The Knights of Columbus do contract with them around the uh, March for Life to release a poll that usually shows that pro-lifers support a lot of incremental laws, or that pro-life incremental laws enjoy broad public support. Uh, When you get poll results that are this skewed, uh, the poll should be discarded. And they should have just done another poll with better question warning. Uh, disappointing this was even released.
1: Right. Are problems of, of skewing, like you mentioned, are those really common in the media that we're consuming, and we just don't know it?
2: I think that there's a lot of polls that are asked in you know very uh, misleading ways. You know, I think that uh, you know certainly when you deal with uh, abortion as an issue, uh, people are conflicted. And I think even very subtle differences in the way questions are worded uh, make a big difference. I mean, one of the biggest complaints I have about abortion polling is the frequent polls we see on Roe v. Wade. Uh, I think they provide very little information that's useful about what Americans actually think about abortion. Uh, Many of these polls reportedly show uh, that Roe v. Wade enjoys broad public support. But there's two problems common to almost every Roe v. Wade poll. Uh, The first problem is most of these polls don't explain what Roe v. Wade did. Roe v. Wade effectively legalized abortion on demand in all 50 states throughout all nine months of pregnancy. That is a policy position that a relatively small percentage of Americans believe in. Uh, The second problem with these polls is they don't make clear what happens if Roe v. Wade is overturned. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, uh, abortion isn't banned, uh, decisions about abortion policy go back to the states, and state legislators and governors make decisions about abortion policy in their respective states. So you get a lot of polls out there that, in my opinion, provide very little useful information about what americans actually think about abortion
0: yeah and that's so right you know i'm thinking of a, another recent poll that came out uh this was just earlier in october and it was from gallup and it was about americans trust in media broadly speaking uh the, the headline of the poll was that americans trust in media dips to second lowest on record uh, they they sort of tried to present this in the best possible light by grouping different different uh constituencies and respondents together which i get But when you really dig into the numbers, it's pretty amazing. 7% of U.S. adults said they had, quote, a great deal, unquote, uh, of trust in the media. And then you compare that with uh, 29% who had not very much and 34% who had none at all. Right. So you have two-thirds of Americans saying they have either none or not very much trust in the media. And, you know, I appreciate Gallup bringing these numbers out because I think it provides a lot of important context for what we're doing. You know, we're speaking right now as a part of an explicitly intentionally pro-life conversation about the issues that are important to the human right to life. What those should look like in practice in our society. What more we need to do way beyond the issue of Roe v. Wade, way beyond the constitutional questions. And so we know that just in there that the sort of folks that are going to have an inclination to listen to what we're talking about are probably going to skew pro-life. And there are going to be others, hopefully, who are listening who aren't sure, who maybe haven't made up their mind, who've been pointed here by a friend, a family member, a loved one, because they know that they're debating and wrestling with these issues. And hopefully we can be useful in that discernment process. Um, but we know that in general, the media that often presents itself, the experts, the institutions that present themselves as a sort of uh, unbiased, disinterested objective, those are often the ones we have to look at with the most skepticism, right? It's like we're in a new yellow age of journalism from a century ago where you've got, you know, three newspapers in town. One of them's the Union newspaper. You know, one of them's the, the the big boss newspaper of Tammany Hall. And, you know, the other is the independent newspaper with the scrappy reporters. And you go to the one that you want to go to to get the kind of news you expect to get. That's where we are today. You know, seek out your own adventure kind of news reporting. Um, but, you know, when you dig into the numbers as you did and it helpfully explain like, you know, Dr. New, I would not know without you. For instance, what cross-tabs are? So I appreciate you explaining what those are in these studies uh, because they are a key to understanding them.
1: Yeah, and as a student, Dr. New, I'm learning. You know, I'm in econometrics right now. I'm learning how to to look at these studies now and conduct them on my own. And a lot of times, it's even accidental. You know, whenever you don't include something that you should, or you include too many variables, and and it can just—it's really hard to produce accurate, useful data. Um, And a lot of a lot of our listeners and just the general public, we don't have that training um, to be able to know how to navigate the data set and things like that. But you know, maybe if you had to simplify it for our listeners, maybe ways that you teach your students um, to think about these things, what might be some simple steps for listeners of our podcast to be able to test the, the validity of a study and just kind of Um, have those mental processes as they're reading through media?
2: That's a very good question. I mean, one thing I always say is, you know, never put too much faith in the outcome of any one study. Um, You know, typically try to look at what the research says broadly. You know, typically there's a lot of research going on. And when you have many people doing studies, it's easy to find one with results that are skewed. Um, You know, that, uh, you know, it's, don't blow that one skewed result out proportion. Look at work on right. uh, the general, you know, consensusism among, among good researchers. Uh, also, just be wary of professional organizations. You know, very often professional organizations do take positions for political reasons. You know, they don't necessarily want to rock the boat. Uh, also, you know, read the entire study. Don't read the press release. You know, I know that not everybody has a technical background in statistics, but it can still be useful just to read the entire study. Uh, sometimes, in fact, very often, I would say research is very nuanced. Sometimes we can't necessarily just put findings of a study on an index card or on a press release. So I think it's just very important to uh, you know sift through an entire study, uh, you know, look at all the results out there, uh, seek out research from a wide range of scholars, including scholars from overseas. I think that some of the good work being done on uh, the negative health impact of abortion is being done by researchers overseas. Sometimes they have access to data that we don't have. There's a public health registries, that uh, track women who've had abortions. Uh, that could be useful for us. And just, I think that in some cases, the fact that the pro-life movement is weaker overseas, uh, the research is kind of less threatening to foreign authors. You know, here in the United States, we have a very robust pro-life movement. So if we have a study showing that, you know, abortion poses health risks, a lot of editors won't want to publish that study. They don't want to deal with, you know, criticism from feminist or liberal colleagues. Overseas... You know, the pro movement in general uh, tends to be somewhat weaker. So those journal editors, you know, don't face the pushback. So, uh, again, there's no real easy way to do it, but I just always encourage to seek out a broad range of sources, read a wide range of studies, you know, read the entire study. Uh, you know, a lot of times the authors of a study don't necessarily have the same agenda that, say, an advocacy group might have. You know, they're going to be a bit more nuanced, a bit more truthful, and a bit more accurate.
1: Just out of curiosity, do you have trouble finding accurate data, you know, even just medical data even that you can use in your research? I know I know it's something thats often um, you know, abortion in general and and definitely negative health outcomes, something that's very covered up. have you have you found that?
2: I think that researchers on abortion uh, don't have it easy. I mean, Specifically, because the United States has very weak laws when it comes to abortion reporting. I mean, the mm. CDC is tasked with um, collecting abortion data, and their data is incomplete. Uh, California has not released any abortion data to the CDC since 1997. 97, uh, Maryland probably has not released any data since 2005. Uh, there's other states that aren't always consistent about reporting it as well. So, and even the data we do get is of kind of mixed quality. Uh, Some health departments take it very seriously and try to be accurate. You know, other health departments probably just do kind of a a perfunctory job. Um, Now, we do have data from the CDC. We also have data from Guttmacher. I mean, Guttmacher does a survey of abortion facilities I imagine the facilities probably trust Guttmacher because they're sympathetic to legal abortion. So you have two data sets, and you know they're, they correlate pretty well with each other. So we can kind of generate some useful information there. But it'd be better if the U.S. had stronger, you know, requirements in terms of abortion reporting, in terms of complications, in terms of negative health outcomes. Uh, that would help researchers a great deal. But here in the United States, we just don't have that.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing too when you consider it, you know, this is a a culture we've had for 50 years, half a century, where we've been told by the elite uh, in our society that abortion is a fundamental human right in some form or other, the rationales and the justifications change, but the claim remains, and yet, as you're pointing out, there's not a central tracking of this, you know. When it comes to the other things that, that we're told or that are, in fact, fundamental to our society, uh, think of, of the market economy, for instance, Right, we're able to track in real time. You can set alerts on your iPhone. They're built in. If you want to track the stock market, if you want to track gains and losses in a particular stock, if you want to trade slices of a stock, you can do all these things through brokerages and, and data sets and, and services and startup companies. But when it comes to getting even basic data, in some of the most populous states where people are obtaining abortions the most, there's no data. It's a total void. There's no insight into what's really happening, what the health outcomes are, uh, or if there are negative outcomes, how they can be rectified systematically. You think of something like a Dr. Kermit Gosnell from a few years ago in Philadelphia, uh, who had just gruesome scenes of, of uh, you know— Things that were brought to court in terms of abuse and, uh, and lack of patient care. Uh, and yet when it comes to abortion, when it comes to this thing that we're told wrongly, by the way, is a fundamental right, uh, nobody's paying attention to it. And you have to conclude at the end of the day, isn't that just because they don't want the full story to be known? It's too inconvenient.
2: Right. I mean, uh, the whole Kermit-Cosnell situation was a real tragedy. I mean the State Department the State Health Department of Pennsylvania was not doing on-site inspections. Even after women died in Glasgow's clinic, they never bothered to do an insight inspection. I think they brought him in for questioning, but and I mean to laugh because it was awful, but you know, they never even did an on-site inspection of this man's facility. I and mean, that's just horrible neglect. Um and you know, there's nothing to be feared from data. I mean, good data should help everybody. You know, everyone should support more transparency. I mean, I think better abortion data would be useful uh, for a variety of reasons. It would help evaluate the efficacy of contraception programs. It would help evaluate the efficacy of sex education programs. Um, you know, if there are situations involving abortion complications and health risks, public health you know, officials should know about that.
1: So That should be something better, we care about. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: I mean, better information benefits everybody. I think that more transparency is a great thing, and it's just kind of sad that our opponents uh, don't seem to make this much of a priority at all. In fact, I think by and large, they seem pretty happy with the status quo in most cases.
0: Well, so I want to talk about the status quo for a minute and, and the status quo ante as well, because I think this illustrates uh, or can illustrate perhaps, and we'll walk through it with you, Dr. New, uh, the challenge in the way questions are asked and the way uh, they produce results. So let's take an example. Um, you know, Dr. New, if, if I were to ask Americans uh, a polling question, say the year is 1970 and you were to ask most Americans, uh, "Are you satisfied with uh, the constitutional um, status of abortion in 1970?" Most Americans would favor the status quo at that point. Is that a fair estimation?
2: I think so. I mean, I think that uh, by and large, in 1970, abortion policy was handled by the states, and some states were taking action to, um, you know, make their abortion laws more permissive. That was a year when New York. Uh, passed their law to make abortion uh, legal in that state through the first two trimesters. And that vote was very close to the New York state legislature and other states were doing similar things as well. But abortion wasn't even a national issue. I mean, uh, that's right. Yeah. Either presidential candidate in 1968, I think, even addressed the issue of legal abortion. This was, by and large, a state-based issue. And by and large, people seemed you know, reasonably happy with that.
0: Now, what's great about a question like that, of course, too, is that it's specific, right? It addresses the issue of abortion policy, and it says so right there in the plain language of the question. But you could also ask a question like that, same type of question, but get a radically different outcome if you were to pose it, for instance, like you say, Dr. New, in a state like New York or in a particular locality in a state like New York. If you were to find, uh, say, a, a part of Manhattan where you know overwhelmingly, people in this part of Manhattan or Brooklyn uh, are pro-abortion, but you change the wording of the question to something broader, like, uh, do you favor the current constitutional order? Question mark.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, their answer might be no, right? And then the result you get might be that Americans in New York uh, or in this part of Manhattan broadly oppose the American constitutional system. Yeah. And there would be hysterics, right? Rightly so, because it seems like a result like that would be outrageous that suddenly you're saying new yorkers oppose the constitutional order but that is in fact one disingenuous uh, uncharitable way that you could characterize pro abortion americans prior to roe v wade is you could you could cast them out and you could say that these folks oppose the constituor- the constitutional status quo because they want permissive abortion laws that's basically the same trick that's played right in those polling differentials that you have talked about when you see questions asking americans do they favor Roe, right? Where most Americans don't really know what Roe means in practice. They don't know the scope of mm-hmm. it. They might not even know what Roe has to do with particular case law. They might not know Roe is a constitutional case. They might be embarrassed and not ask the, the questioner, right? Because they don't want to be seen as, as not knowing. And so they give an answer but then you see different polling when people are asked specifically about abortion and particularly in specific terms, like do you support the intentional dismemberment of a human child, uh, which is one of the particular means of abortion and you get wildly different results. Right. So to me, I think that's an important, uh, sort of a mini case study in, in how pollsters can manufacture or engineer the sort of responses they want, especially if they're being paid by a client.
2: Yeah. I mean, essentially, uh, Again, it's very easy to manipulate a poll on abortion to give you the result you want. If you frame the poll around protecting preborn children, the prolet position does very well. If you frame it around women's rights or women's health, uh, abortion polls or legal abortion polls well. And there's even very subtle things pollsters can do that might escape the public eye. For instance, the questions you ask prior to the abortion question make a difference. If you ask people about religion, do you pray? Do you go to church? Do you read the Bible? And, oh, how do you feel about abortion? people are more likely to say they're pro-life. But if you start asking questions about women and women's role in society, do you believe in equal work for equal pay? Do you think women should be allowed to serve in the military? And, oh, how do you feel about abortion? People are more likely to identify as, quote-unquote, pro-choice. So there's very subtle things that pollsters can do uh, to really generate whatever outcome they want on these abortion polls.
0: And that's, as you say, data matters too, right? Because then you, you, you can't just provide one answer. Uh, from a larger poll, you've got to provide the whole this whole set of data, all those questions and answers so that folks like yourself can can dig through them and figure out, is there a larger story or is there a larger narrative driving this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. New, you know, we're looking at what this Marist poll shows, which is, you know, they're saying strong opposition to the Texas heartbeat bill and similar similar legislation. Um you know, based on your research and based on other polls that you've seen, do a majority of Americans want unlimited abortion?
2: I think it's very clear that most Americans do support incremental pro-life laws. Uh, there's a very wide body of polling data from Gallup and other reputable pollsters that show that many of the incremental laws pro or support uh, pull very well. Uh, I think since the past five to six years, we've seen at least nine polls on tax refunding for abortion. In all nine, a plurality opposed tax refunding of abortion. In eight of the nine, a majority did. Uh, people do not want their tax dollars paying for abortion. Uh, Gallup asked questions about third trimester abortions and second trimester abortions. Uh, in almost in every case, supermajorities uh, oppose abortion after the first trimester. Uh, Prenatal vomit laws, waiting periods, informed consent laws all pull very well. Uh, you know, Americans, you know, don't support the status quo on abortion. You know, they do want some protections put in place for pre-born children.
1: Right. And I think this helps us to think about the way that we interact with our friends and coworkers and neighbors on this issue, because like you said, it matters the context of the conversation, right? I mean, if the pollsters are asking, you know, questions in one direction, we can also, start to take some of those buzzwords and just really triggering, you know, language out of the conversation. And, and for example, like a parental consent law. I know I had a few friends asking me about the Women's Health Protection Act. And, you know, that's an expansive thing. And of course, it sounds wonderful for women to be protected. But one example that I would share was, well, I mean, it's trying to strip states of being able to, you know, establish some some standards for abortion um, and and just take away any hindrance or any waiting period, anything but the parental consent law was one of the major ones. It's like if you actually think about it and if we actually just take it out of the context of a of a very fiery issue, a very fiery conversation and say should a minor be able to make this decision alone? to To have a, a dangerous surgery um, and to to have an abortion without the consent of of a guardian. and we they have to have a guardian in their life because they're minor. So should they be able to make this decision alone? And I think in in a common sense um, down to earth, just person to person conversation, these laws can really just become a lot more real and a lot more approachable.
0: That's right. And it gets to the heart. You know, it's Anaclare. It's like, it's not just should they be able to make these decisions alone if they're a minor. It's like, should they have to? Because when we right. talk, when we look at law and policy, what we forget so often is that, you know, law has intended effects. Way too often, I think we talk about the unintended effects. You know, I think conservative and libertarian minded Americans tend to do that because they're focused on sort of the negative externalities. And that's that's all well and good. But we can't lose sight of the fact that law has an object at its heart. That's why it's passed, you know, whether it's a budget bill or a social bill. And that, I think, is one of the tragedies of of our jurisprudence on abortion uh, is that, you know, especially in Casey, you know, for the past 30 years, the court was asked to grapple with this fundamental issue of Roe and abortion. And they punted on all the moral and ethical concerns at the heart of it by just saying, well... You know, our past rulings have kind of created a demand for abortion that maybe now has something to do with women's empowerment, Uh, and they put that forward and kind of just let that be the extent of it. And, you know, I'm sorry, that wouldn't pass muster um, on most undergraduate essay requirements for a logic class, and yet it's something that the Supreme Court handed down as if it was a justification for their own ruling or their own past decisions. Uh, and to me, that seems to be what's driving the heart of support for incremental pro-life law uh, and support for actual women's protection laws, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you're right that we forget, you know, we we characterize these laws one way or another on both sides of the aisle as as just it's me against you. It's sure. I just want to protect single, women,
0: man. Anna Claire, what right, do you want to like do? Like every you know? <laughs>
1: single, yeah, every single abortion related law is restrictive to women's rights instead of, Oh, this one actually kind of champions, you know, a woman's ability to make this decision and, and just gives her the resources that, um, any person might want to have before making a if you want to call it medical, even, even a surgery, we've had this conversation and, and you're right that they're, before this became something that divides people and families, there were thoughtful lawmakers at the process, you know, thinking about what needed to surround a decision, um, a life and death decision. And yeah, yeah. So we we simplify it too much and and can often just forget to have a level headed conversation about what does this really mean and what is what is involved in this
0: legislation? Right. Even asking these questions, it's, you know, as you you pointed out, you know, you look at something like Women's Health Protection Act and just stepping back with the name, the name of any of these bills and sort of asking, you know, why would they call it that? You know, the Patriot Act, why would you call it that? Whatever the bill is, you know, and it's because there are lawmakers and lobbyists behind them who have intended objectives and you want to name something, uh, something that just sounds like the most attractive thing in the world. You know, I mean, the mm-hmm. the current infrastructure bills and everything that the Senate and the, the White House are pushing, you know, if they named them the Joe Biden ice cream bill, a lot more people would probably be for them. Right. I mean, that's a little too simplistic. Maybe give it 10 years, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's often as simple as that. We'll
2: a better right. example, the, the Affordable Care Act. I mean. You know, obviously, I'm sure you know listeners may have some uh, difference of opinion about uh, you know the health care reform bill, but you know the Affordable Care Act did not make health care more affordable for many people. In fact, I'd argue for a lot of people, health care is more expensive now. But mine you know, went up at the time, yeah. Yeah, you know, my I'm sure my premiums have gone up as well. So, and I think many people's have. So, uh, you know, essentially good. Good intentions are are not enough. Just giving a a bill a a nice shoddy name uh, doesn't seem mean it's going to do its intended. There are consequences, both intended and unintended, from any kind of legislation that might be passed. And I think that's certainly true with with abortion. You know, I think that uh, you know it has made uh, society you know a lot more uh, promiscuous. Uh, I think it's made it you know much easier. Uh, for men to walk away from pregnancies that they, you know, help create. Uh, And I think that it's been a situation that's oddly enough, not just even oddly enough, that certainly has been uh, more difficult for women in many cases. You know, it's women who have to deal with the aftermath of these unintended pregnancies in ways that they didn't have to before. So I think essentially abortion has, like a lot of other policy changes, some unintended consequences have been very serious and have been very tough for women.
1: Yeah. And so as we talk about what Americans United for Life does. I know you've been involved for years because you believe in it, and you you believe that policymaking towards a culture of life actually reduces the number of abortions. And I know you've probably touched on this in the past, even on this show. But tell us a little bit about your your study on you know actual maybe maybe more majority of Americans support incremental change um, towards the culture of life. But you know how. How do we see this reflected in numbers of abortion?
2: Well, one thing that I always tell people, any pro-life audience that will listen to me, uh, the pro-life movement has succeeded in getting abortion numbers down. We've seen the abortion rate fall by 53% since 1980. And it's interesting. Usually there's a big public policy success story, the fall of communism, declining crime rates in New York City, the polio vaccine. It gets lots of attention. Outside a handful of analysts that really care about abortion numbers, almost nobody knows this. And also, it's important to know kind of why abortion numbers are falling. Uh, our opponents agree numbers have gone down. They have their own narrative, which I think is incorrect. They claim it's contraception, But one thing I always point out is that we've not seen a consistent decline in the unintended pregnancy rate that we've seen in the abortion rate. We've seen fluctuations uh, in the unintended pregnancy rate since 1980. We've seen a fairly steady decline in the abortion rate. What we have seen is an increase in the percentage of unintended pregnancies carried to term. Uh, as recently as 1994, uh, 54% of unintended pregnancies were aborted. Uh, since 2001 or so, or since 2008, that number's been in the low 40s. So, when confronted with unintended pregnancy, more and more women are choosing life. And the reason why I'll tell that to every pro-life audience is that if more women are choosing life, that all flows back to the activities of the pro-life movement. If more women are choosing life, or either passing incremental pro-life laws to protect unborn children, or providing more and better help to women through pregnancy help centers, or we're changing hearts and minds and just persuading people uh, to carry those pregnancies to term. So, uh, again, and when it comes to legislation, again, there's just very good evidence from the United States and around the world that protective laws work. A uh, big body of research showing that you know, limiting tax funding of abortion through Medicaid gets abortion numbers down. Even Guttmacher, you know, that tries very hard to downplay the impact of pro-life laws, their own lit review backed that up. I mean, they just couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't dodge the truth uh, on that one. Uh, Parental involvement laws, again, very strong body of research showing that you get parents involved in abortion decisions, minor abortion rates go down. Uh, there's good research showing that informed consent laws, uh, when they're properly designed, uh, get abortion numbers down as well. So there's a good body of research that the laws we pass you know, do have a real impact and are building a culture of life.
0: And it's an all all revealed right in the reaction of any, any pro-life law of any consequence in any state that the reaction from Planned Parenthood, NARAL, Center for Reproductive Justice, and so forth is always to scream at it and howl at it and say this must be stopped, it must be enjoined, there must be an injunction issued, it's got to be challenged up to the Supreme Court if they have to take it that far. Uh, And you say, why would you react that way if pro-life laws don't have any positive impact? Uh, You know, positive, meaning that it would uh, lower the abortion numbers, for instance, or provide women actual alternatives to abortion, when we know that so many women, um, especially from an economic and material standpoint, who end up at a Planned Parenthood or whatnot are doing so because they feel they have no other choice. This is not, in general, a situation of people, you know, A mother and a father who find out they're a mother and a father and say well you know we've got a lot of great options uh you know we've got of course the trust fund that we can send the kid to the private school in but you know look we just feel that it's the best thing in this case for uh, us to visit Planned Parenthood and get an abortion maybe next year no that's not happening in almost any case there is the percentage of folks uh who are not materially or financially impacted uh, who would be what we would call upper middle class, uh, who are pursuing abortion as a response. That's a whole separate issue. But for a huge number of folks, it is economic. It is a situ of privati- an issue of privation and a situation where they feel they have no other option and then nobody's reaching out to them to provide answers. Uh, and that's why I think, Dr. New, particularly your uh, volunteer work that you do in Washington, D.C., is something I always like to highlight Uh, especially this time of year when 40 Days for Life is kicking off. So can you just describe this for folks who may have never been publicly pro-life? What is this? What does it involve? Why do you do it? Why do people do it?
2: Sure. The 40 Days for Life campaign uh, is taking place in hundreds of cities in the United States and around the world. And I help organize the Washington, D.C. campaign. And we try to maintain a consistent, prayerful presence in front of the Washington, D.C. Planned Parenthood. And I was there actually this morning for a little while uh, with a few other prayer warriors. Uh, Many people come and pray, and prayer is valuable. People often see people praying outside of abortion clinics. It raises awareness, and sometimes a prayerful presence by itself uh, dissuades some women from obtaining abortions. Others of us, including me, Sidewalk Council, I bring pamphlets with me that include information about field development and include information about local pregnancy help centers that I give out to people as they uh, try to go in. And uh, you know, sometimes we do run into partners or other people who have misgivings about the abortion, and we let them know that there is help and resources and assistance available. Um, you know, our batting average is great, but it's not zero either. You know, there are people who do come and see others in front of the clinic and uh, accept the help we offer and uh, don't go through with the abortion. So uh, that's a little bit about what what we do. Uh, you know, I got involved uh, around 2006. I read a book uh, called *Wrath of Angels*. And it's, to be honest, not a very good book. It's a book about the history of the direct action wing of the pro-life movement. It goes back to Operation Rescue and some things that even precede Operation Rescue. The reason why I say it's not a very good book is because the author is not sympathetic. But it just kind of got the wheels of my head turning a bit. You know, I was always pro-life, but I never really thought much about doing street-level activism. And I felt kind of really called to do it. I felt I couldn't just fight this battle from behind a desk. I'd really be there where the abortions were taking place. Uh, I also consider myself you know, very lucky I have the job I do in the pro-life movement. Uh, you know, I don't really have to raise a lot of money. Uh, I don't have to help real people with real problems unless I choose to do so. Most of the pro-life work I do is fun. I get to write and research and do you know, these fun podcasts and see my name in light. So sometimes I think it's important to do things that aren't always fun or glamorous or pleasant. And being outside the abortion facility when it's cold and you're not getting much support from passers-by, that's honestly not how I like to spend my Saturday morning. But it's important to do. So uh, I always encourage everyone to, you know, look up your local Forty Easter Life campaign, go to a prayer vigil, you know, bring a friend, spend some time in prayer outside the clinic. Uh, I think it'd be well worth your while. I mean, I think that uh, Abby Johnson uh, had a very powerful quote at a conference I was at. Uh, She said, the battle over abortion is not going to be won in the Supreme Court, it's going to be won on the sidewalks. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think the street-level activism does make a real difference, and I'm honored to help run this campaign, and, you know, I encourage everyone to help out.
0: Anna Claire, this isn't Sorry. just what Dr. New's describing as, as activism. We often think of it, you know, purely in political terms, but it's also, you know, I'm kind of putting on the the Mr. Rogers hat here for a second. It just sounds to me like neighborliness, doesn't it?
1: I think so, yeah. And I think too that we're never going to be represented accurately in the media and we can have these conversations about, oh, you know, they phrased this wrong and and you know, this poll says this and this study says this and and this article is just slamming us. And and we're never really going to win those battles because they're they're from, you know, behind a computer screen. And there's no engaging really with that person who who wrote the article or, you know, decided to kind of swing at the pro life movement through their through their keyboard. But but when you're out there, I mean it's undeniable, Doctor New that you care. And, and that those people who are walking into the clinic matter, even though maybe on paper, they disagree with you. But um, I think it really is. Yeah, like you said, Tom, neighborliness and um, just just the very tangible outworking of, um, you know, these, these ideas and conversations and maybe worldview that we have. And it's really un, undeniable that it's a powerful presence um, and it, it can't be the only thing that we do, but also sitting and talking about it can't be the only thing that we do. I mean there's just so many opportunities for everyone to use use what they have, the time they have and the gifts they have to go out and, and care for people who are facing one of the hardest decisions of their lives.
0: Is there anything else you want to hit up before we go into chat of gratitude either Dr. New or Anna Claire?
2: I just want to kind of highlight the Gutbacker study that came out. Uh, I think that it's showing, again, good, even though they're not presenting it this way, the results provide very solid evidence uh, that pro-lifers are making impressive long-term progress. They have data on unintended pregnancies that goes up to 2017. It adds to a body of research that shows that a higher percentage of unintended pregnancies are being carried to term. Uh, Again, during the 80s and 90s, over 50% of unintended pregnancies were aborted. Uh, Since around 2008, uh, that number's been in the low 40s. This most recent study shows that only 44% of unintended pregnancies tragically result in an abortion. So they're not spitting the results in a way that's useful to pro-lifers, but it does provide a body of evidence that more and more women are choosing life. And that's because of pro-life activities, whether they be legislative, service, or educational.
0: That's empowering, and it's hopeful. It shows that there's reason for us to continue to engage in these efforts uh, and to provide real alternatives, whether it's through state policy and, and lawmaking or through just that good old-fashioned neighborliness. So, Dr. New, thanks for, uh, for what you're doing in Washington, D.C., um, both on the sidewalks for your neighbors and, and uh, nationally and internationally through your writing and speaking and, and advocacy.
1: We really appreciate you, Dr. New.
2: Uh, appreciate you all. You guys do great work, but a culture of life, and it's a privilege to partner with you all.
1: We always like to wrap up with a shot of gratitude. So, um, Dr. New, what is something you are grateful for today? Uh,
2: grateful that I had the chance to spend some time out front of the Planned Parenthood and try to build a culture of life. Uh, nothing dramatic happened, but we were uh, a good prayerful presence out there. And I was also grateful that a couple people from out of town showed up unexpectedly to pray. Uh, there were people who I didn't expect to see out there who came, who've uh, done pro-life work around the country, and they were there. Grateful for that.
0: It's an important thing. There's always great people out on the sidewalks, and uh, I think you know, Dr. New, we should uh, should mention too. If you're not already, so many people, like those folks who came out to the sidewalk, find you through Twitter. Uh, you are truly what your bio claims you are, which is the most amusing social scientist in the pro life movement. So, if you're not already, uh, go to twitter.com <laughs> and follow Michael New. That's if not my I gratitude, was- Anna Claire. I'm just giving him a promo. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, my, my handle is at Michael underscore J underscore new. That's at Michael underscore J underscore new. And uh, yeah, keep up with me on Twitter. And uh, again, if any listener you know needs my assistance with their pro-life efforts, reach out to me. I'm more than happy to be of service.
1: We'll link it in the show notes as well as your most recent articles on National Review Online. All right, Tom, your turn.
0: You know, Anna-Claire, Dr. New, I, I am really grateful for, it's it's October, uh, it's a fun time of year, but I'm really grateful for the chance to get out of D.C., you know, uh, it was just a, a, about a month ago that uh, I was married, which is awesome, uh, and so the first month yes, of married congrats. life, thank you so much, has been a, a true blessing. Uh, to live down here in Washington, D.C. with my lovely wife. Um, but, you know, as much as we love the city and have been coming to to love exploring Washington, D.C., uh, it was also good recently to get out of Washington, D.C. We went out to for folks who are in the area and know the geography, Loudoun County, uh, which is, uh, you know, we went to a part that was about an hour, hour and a half, depending on traffic, um, northwest of the city. And uh, it was great to be out there. It's farm country, and uh, this is a beautiful time of year to, uh, to enjoy that crisp fall, weather uh, and to enjoy the mountains and uh, and, and streams and valleys of uh, of this wonderful country. So Anna Claire, how about you? What's something you're grateful for?
1: <laughs> you know, I am I have a lot to be grateful for, but today, and, and this could change by the time this comes out next week, but I'm really grateful that the Braves, my baseball team, and I know Dr. <laughs> Dr. New enjoys baseball, that they have uh, stayed at the top of the National League East. So I'm pretty excited about that this week. And And honestly, still, you know, we haven't quite hit that crisp fall weather here in Alabama. So maybe next time that'll be my shot of gratitude. You know, I got
0: to ask Anna Claire and and Dr. New, if you have thoughts on this too, did you see this, this terrible thing? I think that's terrible at least that uh, they're considering rule changes in baseball to do things like they want to allow batters to steal first. Do you see this?
1: I have not.
0: Yeah. Really disappointing. I'm a traditionalist when it comes to baseball. So I want it uh, thoughtful, meditative, and slow.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. that uh, you know, frankly, that they should quit interleague play. They should throw out the wild card. You know, <laughs> I like the fact that teams actually have to win the pennant to you know get in the playoffs in the first place. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think they should kind of speed the game up. Don't let the pitchers dawdle around as much as they do between pitches. But no, keep the game the way it is. I mean, you know, th- that's just ridiculous.
0: Good. Well, <laughs> we uh, we uh, continue to follow the Braves and see how things go. So. We'll see. Awesome. Dr. New, thanks so much for a good conversation, and keep up the good work.
2: Ah, thank you for having me. All
0: right. If you enjoyed our conversation today with Dr. Michael J. New of the Charlotte Lozier Institute of the Catholic University of so many good pro-life works, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the show, rate it and leave a review. And visit AUL.org to learn how to engage more with American Center for Life and our mission to advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy in every state. Dr. New spoke so much about incrementalism and the power of incremental laws as we walk the road to ultimate abolition of abortion in American society. So learn about how we do that and support our work at American Center for Life at AUL.org. And until next time, I am Tom Shakely. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.